find a place to sit down to hear God's Word this morning? If you ever wonder why we come to church, we come to church to do what we just did. We come to church to sing songs about God and about His goodness. Some of you needed to hear that truth this morning, that He split the sea so you could walk right through it. He split the sea. These people were God's people. They were up against, they were running, and they came up to this sea. It was a dead end. They were done. They were goners. They had no solution. It was over. But God split the sea so they could walk across on dry ground. Some of you guys find yourself backed up against a situation that feels impossible this morning. It feels difficult. It looks too big. But God wanted to remind you this morning that he split the sea before, and he's not afraid to do it again if he needs to. He'll split the sea in your life too, all right? Before I get going down that road, let me go down the road I'm supposed to go on. All right, so we've been doing a series on relationships, and this morning we're going to wrap that up. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but elevators are kind of strange places. Like, you get in, and everybody kind of packs together, and you try not to touch each other, and people don't usually talk on elevators. In fact, if you're having a conversation with someone, and you get on the elevator with other people, usually you stop that conversation, and then when you get off the elevator, you start the conversation again, and you try to not really look at anybody. In fact, everyone just kind of looks up and watches the floors click by, waiting for their floor that they're going to get off on. Elevators are kind of weird places. When I was 19 years old, I was attending Bible school at Elam Bible Institute, and for two months in your second year of school, you go do an internship at New York School of Urban Ministry in New York City. So I was there for two months, and me and my friends like to have fun and like to get ourselves in trouble and like to do pranks and stuff like that. So when we were in Lima at Elam, we, there was only so many restaurants we could prank call. Like There just wasn't that many restaurants, but we used to call all of them pretty much every night. Um, but anyways, so we're in New York City. Now there's lots of restaurants to call. So now we're calling people and prank calling people and doing all kinds of fun stuff at night when we'd get bored. The girls lived two floors down from us, and we would try and prank them pretty much every night. Down on the first floor of the building we lived in were the people that were overseeing our class, and we would prank them a lot. They didn't think it was as funny as we did. But this one particular day, it was our day off. None of us had any ministry we had to do. On almost every other day we were there, we had ministry we were, were responsible for. This day we were free. We had an entire day free, which didn't happen very often for us. So a group of friends and I decided we were going to go explore New York City. So we kind of had like a bunch of destinations that we wanted to check out. One of the places we wanted to go to was this skyscraper where you could take an elevator all the way to the top and you could look out over all of New York City and there was this glass floor you could climb out on and look down, like all this kind of stuff, right? So we're waiting in line. It's kind of a long line to get onto this elevator. We finally get up to the point where it's our turn to get on and a bunch of people have already gotten on the elevator and this group of friends of mine, we start walking towards the elevator and the people in the elevator look at us like, you guys aren't all going to try and shove yourselves on here, are you? And we look back at them like, yep, we are. So we start cramming ourselves into this elevator. And I get in the elevator, and I turn around. And the last person to get on is a friend of mine who is not exactly the slimmest gentleman in the world. In fact, he's kind of on the big side, right? So he gets on, and he crams himself on the elevator. And I'm standing here, and I turned around. So him and I are like as close as we can get, as close as his belly will allow us to get. And I'm like this, and he's up against me, and the door's like trying to shut behind him, and he's cramming himself in. Now there's no room for him to turn around, so now he's facing everybody in the elevator. And I'm just kind of laughing inside, like, what is going to happen? Like, what stupid thing is this guy going to do? 
And so he kind of sees me laughing a little bit, and he starts to laugh. And so he looks at me and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad that you've all come to this meeting that I've called. And I'm like, oh gosh, where's this going to go? We've got 140 floors of his monologue we've got to listen to, right? He says, it's been my life's goal to save the planet. And I have found, after much research, the way that we will save the planet together is by saving the sea turtles. And he goes on this epic monologue about saving the sea turtles. He gets done with his monologue and he says, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to my meeting today. And everyone kind of starts to clap and laugh. And another friend of mine goes, ma'am, this is not funny. We're talking about sea turtles. <laughs> and everybody starts to laugh again. And so finally we introduced ourselves to these people. And it was a fun ride until this little boy decided to pull the emergency stop handle, which wouldn't have been that big of a deal, except for we're all like this, like can barely breathe without pushing our stomachs against each other. It was, that was a fun ride. So elevators are kind of like a microcosm of the world that we live in. Impersonal institutions where everyone keeps their space, their independence, and they're just looking for the next stop in life. It shows us that we can be surrounded by people. We can be a part of clubs. We can be a part of churches. We can even live in a home with people and still not have deep and important and significant relationships. This is not the case for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was born in Tarsus, educated in Jerusalem, lived in Damascus, spent formative time in the desert, moved to Antioch, and this was only the beginning for him. In his professional career, he ventured out from Antioch into three missionary journeys where he went from city to city. And everywhere that Paul went, he built deep, significant, encouraging community of relationships. He built deep, significant relationships with the people around him. So how in the world did Paul seem to build deep relationships everywhere? And today, in, in the day that we live in, we struggle to go past the surface. I was reading through Ephesians earlier this year, and there's a section of scripture that I read that I thought was like a step-by-step -step process by Paul where he tells us how to build deep relationships. And so I want to look at this this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 25 through 32. It says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to give to those, to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul says if you want to have meaningful relationships, if you want to have healthy relationships with the people around you, there's five ways that we go about it. The first way that Paul says is to be honest. This is in verse 25. He says, Therefore, each of you must, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You might say, okay, I've got the first 
Uh, first way to have healthy relationships down. I don't lie to people. But really what Paul says in this word falsehood is it encapsulates a lot more than just simply black and white lies. It includes the idea of being fake or misleading. I think sometimes we skirt around the truth a lot in our lives. Our boss calls us and asks, if asks us if we're still coming to work, and we say, yeah, we're five minutes away. When we know it takes a half an hour. Could you grab that window for me? We know it takes a half an hour to get to work, and we haven't left yet, and we know that when we pulled in our driveway last night, our gas tank light, our gas light came on, and we're on empty, and we didn't put our makeup on yet. We know it's going to take us a lot more than five minutes to get to work, but we tell our boss we're five minutes away, because it's easier for him to pallet than to tell him that we're a half an hour away. So we skirt around the truth. And then we also don't follow through with things that we say we're going to do. We tell people we're going to do things, but then we don't do them and we come up with excuses. I used to get in trouble with my wife sometimes. She would ask me to do things and I, I would forget to do the things that she asked me to do. And understandably so, she would be frustrated. So I thought I came up with a life hack. And what I would do is when she would ask me to do something, I would say I would do it but I wouldn't tell her when I was going to do it, and that would buy me some time. So she would say, like, could you unload the dishwasher? And I'm like, yeah, I would absolutely unload the dishwasher, at least once more in my life, you know, just I'll, I'll get it done. Or she would ask me to take the laundry upstairs, and I would say, yeah, I'll take the laundry upstairs. Before Jesus returns, I will get that laundry upstairs. But really, I was just skirting the reality, pushing off what I didn't want to do, and walking in falsehood. Or sometimes we'll tell people, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't see your call or I didn't see your text. When the truth is, we did see the call, we just chose not to answer it because we didn't feel like talking to them or we saw their text and we didn't respond because we just didn't want to. We walk in falsehood when we do this. I was recently teaching a financial class at another church and um, I was trying to help, to help somebody specific who was struggling with their finances and it was a husband and wife and they wanted to get out of debt. They looked at how much money they made and they said we should be able to do everything that we need to do and do some stuff that we want to and we should be able to plan for the future based on how much money we make, but we're spending so much money paying for these past debts that it's killing us. So they were asking me to help them try and get out of debt. So we built a spreadsheet and we built their budget and we looked at ways we could save money and we talked about some ways we could generate some more income so they could get out of debt quicker. And I said, well, how much money do you have right now? And the lady said, well, let me look. So she opened up her app to look at her bank account, and she was kind of showing it to me. And I, I was just adding up in my head the, the different bank accounts that she had it, while she was showing them to me. And she's scrolling down, and then she gets to the bottom, and I see a bank account that has a lot of money in it. And she scrolls back to the top real quick. And so I was kind of not really sure what to do with that because I was adding up how much she had in the bank account to try and figure out could she pay off her debts. But she acted kind of squirrely about that one, so I'm like, I don't really know what to do right now. So finally, I was just like, I decided I was going to call her out on it. So I'm like, so I was adding up how much was in your accounts for you, and I couldn't help but notice there was a, an account there that had a, a little bit more money, actually had a lot of money in it. And then she strung together about 60 words that weren't sentences and didn't make any sense, and some of them were just noises and weird stuff. And so I just kind of sat there and I said, um, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to try that again. This time we're going to go with words. We're going to make sentences. And we're going to start with the truth is what we're going to do. And she went like this. She went, <sighs> she said, I was 16 and I got pregnant. And my dad made me marry the guy. And he was horrible. He was abusive. He was a really, really horrible person. 
She said, after a little while, he just packed up and left one day. A few months later, he sent me divorce papers. And of course, I signed them because I couldn't wait to get away from him. She said, then a couple years later, I met this wonderful man and we got married. She said, but I had had such a horrible experience with this first husband. He took every dime that we had in our bank account and emptied it when he left. Ever since then, I've been afraid that my husband was going to do that. I said, how long have you been married? She said, 28 years. I said, okay. So she said, I got, I got, no, sorry, she'd been married 30 years, but 28 years before that, she had gotten a job, and she'd worked this job for 28 years. She said, the first day I got the job, I was still scared that my husband was going to leave me. He was going to turn out to be a bad man. She said, so I asked my boss if he would send three-quarters of my check to our normal account and send 25% of my check to this other account. And I said, if that was 28 years ago, yeah. And I said, so you've been doing that for 28 years? She said, yeah. I said, is your husband a bad man? She said, no, he's the best. He would never, he would never hurt me. He would never do anything like that. Like, so for 28 years, you had an irrational fear. You lived your life based out of that irrational fear. And you've been robbing from your family for 28 years. And now you have tens of thousands of dollars in this account, more than enough money to pay off all of your debts. I said, just think about the last 28 years, the times where your family was tight financially, the times where your husband went and took a second job. Right now, we've been talking about you or your husband picking up a second job to get out of debt. And all along, you had this other bank account that you've been sending some of your paycheck to without telling your husband. These are the kind of dishonest things that erode the strength of a relationship. Paul says, if you want to have healthy relationships, you've got to be honest. Probably the second week that I was on staff here at Family Life Church, my dad sent someone to my office who needed some help with their finances. And since that time, hardly a month has gone by where I haven't helped some family or some couple or some individual with their finances. And I can tell you within about five minutes whether a couple is going to succeed or whether or not they're going to fail. That's all it takes usually most of the time. I can tell you whether or not they're going to apply this stuff to their life and make changes or whether they're not. And one of the first indicators that whether or not a couple is going to succeed or fail is whether or not they have joint bank accounts. It seems so simple. It seems like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But there's so many couples that I get together with, and they say, well, no, he does his thing with his money, and, and I do my thing with mine. We have, we have separate bank accounts. So just picture it like this. This couple has a car that's in a ditch, and they're trying to pull the car out of the ditch. So they each tie a rope to the bumper, and they're trying to pull it out but they're literally just pulling in opposite directions. That car is never coming out of the ditch. They're never going to make the progress that they want to make because he's doing his thing and she's doing her thing. So many times I watch couples who say, we want to get out of debt, we want to plan for the future, we want to do all these different things, but they're working in opposite directions and they're never seeming to make progress. Not to mention the fact that the Bible says, when two or three people gather in my name, there I'll be. So when you put your finances together and you invite God into that place, it's like you put the sail of your life up and say, this is the direction we're going to go and we're going to work hard at it. And then God blows in the sail and you begin to create momentum to get where you're trying to go as you, your husband, and your wife, and God work together to see that goal accomplished. Not to mention the fact that when, you, when a husband and wife agree on their finances, they're actually agreeing on much more than their finances. They're agreeing on what their future is going to look like. When a husband and wife put their money together and they say, this is, what, this is the budget, this is the plan, this is what we're going to do, you're agreeing together and this is the future that we're going to build. 
When we're not honest with each other, we er it erodes the strength of the relationship. It erodes the confidence of the relationship. So Paul says if you want to have a healthy relationship, the first thing you have to do is be honest. Then Paul says if you want to have a healthy relationship, the second thing you have to do is you have to be a peacemaker. This is in verse 26 and 27. It says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. There's different kinds of anger. Some people are very outward and expressive and verbal with their anger, and other people it's more inward. Last summer I went to, um, to Yummies with Tessa and Jillian, and uh, I wanted to teach them how to like, figure out how much money they had and if they had enough money for the ice cream they wanted to get. And I wanted to teach them how to interact with a cashier and like, do all that sort of thing. So I gave them some money, I told them how it worked, and I sent them up to Yummies to get their ice cream. And I wasn't getting any ice cream, so I just kind of backed up and I, there was a curb on the side of the road. And I was just kind of teetering on the curb like this. And I was listening to them talk to the cashier listening to them like figure out how much money this cone cost and how much money that Sunday cost and how many extra toppings they could get and doing math in their head and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just teetering on the, on the curb, just kind of listening to them, just kind of like laughing at them on the inside. And all of a sudden I felt something against my calf. I was like, that's weird. And I turn and look, and there's a car there. A car had driven up behind me so quietly while I was sitting there rocking on the curb. I, wasn't even, I didn't even hear the tires on the road. It was a Tesla, so it was an electric car. But still, I didn't even hear the tires on the road. I was paying attention to their conversation, and it came up on me real stealthy. Some people are like a Tesla with their anger. It's silent, and it's kind of scary. A Tesla has a lot going on below the surface, but not so much above the surface. Some people are like that with their anger. These are people who give the cold shoulder, people who bottle up their anger, who say they're fine when you ask them how they're doing, but really they're not. There's a lot going on below the surface. They hold grudges for days. Instead of just being honest and saying, I'm upset, but I'm not ready to talk about it yet. These are people who are like a Tesla with their anger. But then there's people who are more like a Bugatti. A Bugatti goes from 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. There's people out there with their anger who... Everything can be fine one minute, but you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing and they start flipping out like they are just going off. They might be cursing or calling names, slamming doors, throwing things, walking out, hanging up the phone on you. The Bible calls this outbursts of anger. And what Paul says is there's no room for this sort of thing in the life of a believer. You've been given everything you need in your life for life and godliness. Paul says there's no room for this in the life of a believer. And in case you don't think that God is serious about anger, let me tell you a little story about a man in the Bible named Moses. Maybe you've heard of him. Moses was watching one of his brothers get beat. And Moses was like, that's not going to happen on my watch. So he goes over and he starts beating the guy who was beating his brother. And then he kills the guy. And then he realizes how much trouble he's going to get in. So he buries the guy in the sand, and he runs out in the desert to hide. Moses is out in the desert for 40 years. You'd think 40 years in the desert would be enough time to let the Lord deal with Moses' anger. So now Moses is 80 years old. you think that would have been enough time to deal with this anger that Moses had on the inside. God comes to Moses, and he says, I want to give you another shot at life. 
He says, I want you to get my people, and I want you to rescue them from slavery, and I want you to lead them to the promised land. Moses is like, okay, let's do it. I got it. So Moses gets the people, and in a miraculous way, he leads them out of slavery, and they're headed to the promised land. And then Moses goes up onto a mountain with God, and he meets with God, just Moses and God, on a mountain for 40 days. 40 days, just Moses and God. And the Bible says that the presence of the Lord was so powerful during that time on the mountain that Moses' face was literally shining with the glory of God. So you'd think, Moses is 80 years old. He's been on the mountain for 40 days with God, experiencing the presence of the Lord. His face is literally shining with the glory of God. You'd think, surely this anger has been dealt with in his heart now. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He comes off the mountain, and God's people should be worshiping God. But he gets to the bottom of the mountain, and they made an idol. They created a golden calf, and they're worshiping this golden calf. Moses' anger gets completely out of control, and he loses it. He takes the Ten Commandments. He throws them on the ground and breaks them. He takes the golden calf. He grinds that joker into a powder. He throws it in the river, and then he tells the people, now go drink your golden calf. Like, Moses' anger kind of got the best of him this time. Like, he's not, like, not doing so good. Like, 80 years old wasn't enough time to deal with the anger. 40 days in the presence of God, the glory on his face, still angry. So Moses starts continuing to lead these people to the promised land. Moses is getting so frustrated trying to lead these people because trying to lead people is challenging sometimes, right? I can understand it, you know? So Moses is so frustrated with these people. They're complaining. They always have problems like, pull your stuff together, people. I don't want to hear your complaining. This is Moses, not me. And so these people are complaining to Moses, and they're like, Moses, it's dry out here. We're in the desert. We're thirsty. And Moses goes to God, and he's like, they won't stop complaining. They're thirsty. God, do something. God says, all right, this is what I want you to do, Moses. Just speak to the rock. I'll let the water flow from the rock, and it'll satisfy their needs. Moses is so ticked off, God told him to speak to a rock. He picks up a stick and smacks the rock with a stick. And God, in his mercy, lets the water flow to quench the thirst of the people. But God says to Moses, that's it. I'm so sick of your anger. I've had it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you lead these people to the promised land, but you don't get to go in anymore. Your unbridled anger has been so out of control in your life that you're not going to get to go into the promised land anymore. He says, I'm going to let you see what you could have had, but you're never going to possess that which should have been yours. That's scary. I'm going to let you see what you could have. You were made for the promised land, Moses. I told you you were going there. You were going to lead my people there. But because of your anger, you're going to get to see it, but you don't get to go in anymore. You know, it makes me wonder how many of us might have an anger issue in our life. And there's a promise that God has given us. There's a promised land that he has for us, but we're not going to get to go in because God's given us chance after chance after chance to deal with the anger in our life, but we just seem to refuse. God calls us to be peacemakers. Paul tells us here, if we want to have healthy relationships, we need to be peacemakers. But we're so addicted to our anger that we're not willing to let it go. 
Then Paul doesn't just tell us not to be angry, but he tells us why we shouldn't be angry. He says, don't let the sun go down in your anger because you will give the devil a foothold. He says you can be angry, but don't be angry for more than a day. He says, be the one to pursue reconciliation. Be the one to pursue peace in the relationship. Don't always put it off on the other person and say it's the other person's responsibility to make peace. It's the other person's responsibility to reconcile. You be the one to pursue peace in the, in the relationship. In my sermon preparation, I often will look at the Greek or Hebrew, but I don't often share it here because I don't really think you're coming here for a Greek or Hebrew lesson on Sunday morning most times. But I saw something here that I think was significant, and I wanted to share it with you guys. The word that Paul uses here for foothold is the word that we get topography from, as in the study of land or earth. So what Paul is saying is don't give the devil space. Or if I could translate this to how we talk in 2022, I would say don't give the devil real estate in your mind. And then the word that he uses for devil here is the word slanderer. Slanderer. So what Paul is actually saying here is that when you and this other person you're supposed to be relating to, this person you have a relationship with, when you guys aren't speaking to each other, when you let that anger go more than a day, when you guys are giving each other the cold shoulder and the silent treatment, when you guys aren't speaking to each other, the devil is speaking to you about the other person. When you give the devil space in your life, He's going to be speaking to you. He's going to be slandering this person you're supposed to be in relationship with. Over the last few weeks, we talked a lot about the reticular activating system and the thinker and the prover and how those systems work together to create your mindset. When we give the devil real estate in our mind, it's like we're inviting him into that process. We're inviting him to come and slander this other person that God has called us to love, this other person that God has called us to be in relationship with. So first Paul says, if you want to have a healthy relationship, you have to be honest. Then he says, be a peacemaker. And then third, he says to be selfless. In verse 28, he says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands so that they have something to share with those in need. We have this process of walking with Jesus and what that process usually looks like for most of us, if you can picture your life as a jar, our, jar, our life is filled up with stuff, like a jar filled up with stuff. And life is messy sometimes. Like sometimes there's messes in our life that we created, probably most of them, the messes we created in our life. We have sin in our life and all kinds of problems and most of that stuff that we created. But it could also be something that someone else did that caused a mess in our life. So here we have this jar of our life that's filled with stuff, and it's not good stuff. And the process of walking with the Lord is the Lord emptying us of that stuff and filling us with his Holy Spirit. And that's amazing, and that's powerful, and that's a huge transformation that can take place in our life, from, going to, from having a life filled with sin and filled with a mess to being filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not where that process is supposed to stop. Your life isn't just supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're supposed to be pouring out. You were designed by God to receive from the Holy Spirit and then to pour out. And I get concerned that sometimes people get stuck in that place of just me and Jesus, just 
worshiping Jesus, just me and Jesus. And in that place, you've been poured into, you have the Holy Spirit that's been poured into you, but sometimes that can even become stagnant. It can become like a stagnant pond, and it can get kind of mucky and kind of self-absorbed, and just me and Jesus, and Jesus, you love me, and I feel so good. I'm a son or daughter of Christ, and this is great. And just me, I just worship Jesus, and he loves me, and just staying in that place and never moving to the place of letting that which he has poured into you be poured out of you. Your life is not supposed to look like a pond. It's supposed to look like a refreshing stream. Your life was designed by God to be poured out, to be a blessing to those around you. And I think in the last couple of years specifically, there's been a grave danger of the body of Christ becoming a bunch of stagnant ponds as opposed to a stream flowing with life. I mean, there's a season of time where we were all just supposed to stay home. And then eventually it's like, hey, we didn't have church for a while. And we just all kind of can get stuck in that self-absorbed, selfish place. This is my bubble and these are my people and we're going to do what feels good for us. And we never move to that place of letting our life become a refreshing stream for those around you. And I just want you to look at your life for a second and say, you know, has my life become like a stagnant pond? Has it been kind of... Uh, it's, is it kind of icky? Has it been kind of self-absorbed where I'm only caring about myself and my wants and my needs and what feels good for me and oh, this is best for me and this is best for my family and, and what about a life that's poured out for Jesus? Your, your life was designed to be poured out for Jesus, to serve those around you. Paul says if you want to have healthy relationships, you have to be selfless. And the fourth thing that Paul says is if you want to have healthy relationships, be an encourager. In verse 29 he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The story is told of a, a man who went into a lawyer's office and he said, I want to get a divorce. The lawyer said, do you have grounds? The man said, yeah, we have three acres or so. The lawyer said, uh, that's not exactly what I meant. He said, well, do you have a suit? And the man said, yeah, I've got two suits. I wear them to church on Sunday. The lawyer said, that, that's not what I meant. He said, do you have a grudge? And he said, no, we have a carport. She parks on one side and, and I park on the other. The lawyer started to kind of get frustrated and he said, does your wife beat you up or something? And the man said, no, I beat her up every morning. I'm an early riser. I've always gotten up before she did. The lawyer started to lose his mind and he said, sir, what is the problem in your marriage? And he said, oh, communication. And the lawyer said, sounds about right. We struggle in communication. We struggle to communicate in healthy ways. And Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth and when he says this word unwholesome what that word means is rotten corrupted or spoiled it has attached to it the idea of something that's no longer of any value something that's not good anymore so what paul is actually saying here is he's saying don't let anything come out of your mouth that's not going to be of value to the person you're speaking to don't let anything come out of your mouth that's not going to be a blessing to the person you're speaking to don't let anything come out of your mouth that's not going to help the person you're speaking to get where they want to go, that's going to build them up and encourage them. I would say this can include things like sarcasm, criticism, demeaning someone, dismissing others' opinions, talking down to them, name-calling, cursing, and abusive words. 
Paul says, get this type of stuff out of your life. There's no place for it in the life of a believer that has Jesus Christ living inside of them. Some of us think we have the spiritual gift of criticism. And I hate to break it to you, but I checked out the, the list of spiritual gifts, and criticism is not one of them. Like, shocker, right? So we kind of dress it up and we say, oh, I have the gift of help, so I'm just trying to help these people out. But the truth is, you're not really helping anyone. You're just tearing people down. If you want to be able to speak a constructive criticism into someone's life, you have to earn the right to do it. You don't get to do it. You don't get to just drop that constructive, supposedly, criticism on them. You don't get to do it. You have to earn the right to do that. And the way that you earn the right to do that is by building the relationship, building the relationship to the place where it's strong enough where it could handle that criticism. The way you build it up to make it that strong is you invest in it. You encourage that person. You speak words of life into that person to get that relationship to a place of strength where they could handle you saying something like, hey, so I've noticed you do this thing, and maybe you're not trying to do it in this way, but this is how it comes off to people around you. But if you haven't built the relationship to that place of strength, you don't get to do that. You haven't earned the right to speak into someone's life in that way. John Gottman is famous for studying this very thing. And he said that in the study that they did, they found out for every positive and encouraging thing that each person hears on a regular basis, they receive six criticisms. Or six times they're tear, they're tried to, someone tried to tear them down or said something negative about them for every positive thing. As Christians, I don't want to see us be a part of those people that are dropping the six criticisms on people. I want to see us be the salt of the earth. I want to see us encouraging the people around us and blessing the people around us. In that same study, they said they determined that with 90% accuracy, they could tell whether or not a couple was going to make it or whether or not they were going to get divorced. And he said it wasn't any of the typical things that you would expect it to be. It wasn't infidelity. It wasn't a lack of money. It wasn't having a child with special needs. It wasn't any of those typical things. It was simply, did the couple have negative, unhealthy communication? He said if they had negative, unhealthy uh, communication, it didn't matter how great their life was. Their, their chances of succeeding was only 10%. Said, But if they had positive and encouraging communication in their marriage, they could walk through some of the most difficult things in life, things that you thought for sure it could be the ending point for their marriage, and they could come out the other side still together because they had positive, encouraging communication. And the last thing that Paul says is if you want to have healthy relationships, he says to be a forgiver. In verse 32, it says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, Forgive each other just as Christ, God, forgave you. Paul doesn't just ask us to forgive one another. He says to forgive each other as Christ forgave us. And that word forgive that he used there simply means to cancel a debt. So when you forgive someone, what you're in fact saying is, I'm not going to try and make you pay for what you've done. I'm not going to try and punish you. I'm not going to beat you up for the way that you hurt me. So how do you do that? How do you forgive? What does that even look like? I think we need to understand the foundation of forgiveness. The foundation of forgiveness is actually faith. The foundation of forgiveness is faith that God saw what happened to you. Faith that God saw the fact that you were hurt, someone did something to you that was wrong, and he acknowledged it. And then faith that you believe 
he can handle that person better than you can. You could probably come up with a bunch of ways that you want to hurt that person or discipline them or make them pay, but, but forgiveness says, God, I trust that you can deal with them better than I can. And you can get a better outcome than I can by trying to punish them the way that I would dream up to punish them. Forgiveness doesn't mean that pain is not there anymore. Pain doesn't go away immediately when you forgive. But forgiveness does mean the absence of bitterness. doesn't necessarily mean the absence of pain, but it does mean the absence of bitterness. Because when you hold unforgiveness against somebody, it's not just them that you're putting in prison. It's actually yourself that you're putting in prison. I think probably most of us have had experiences with people who are very, very bitter people, people who walk through life carrying bitterness. And literally, someone who's walking through life carrying bitterness, it's like they're just dropping poison on all the people around them. Seemingly, every time they open their mouth, it's just like, wow, that person chose not to forgive someone a long time ago, and now still, all these years later, they're poisoning the relationships of the people around them because of the bitterness in their heart. It wasn't just that other person that ended up in jail because they didn't forgive them. This person ended up in jail in their own jail of bitterness. Paul says if you want to be a healthy person, you need to be honest, you need to be a peacemaker, be selfless, be an encourager, and be a forgiver. Would you bow your heads this morning? For the last five weeks, we've been doing this series on relationships, and today I wrapped it up with Paul's five steps to a healthy relationship. And I hope there's a lot of stuff you could have taken out of Um, Out of all of these messages where we talked about our mindset and how that works. But I wonder if this morning there's something the Lord wants to put his finger on in your life. Maybe out of these five ways that Paul says that we can cultivate healthy relationships. I talked to you a little bit about how God gave Moses a bunch of chances to deal with his brokenness. A bunch of chances to deal with his anger specifically. I wonder what the Lord might want to put his finger on in you and say, hey, this is... This is an area we need to work on so that you can have healthy relationships, so you can be a blessing to the people around you. Maybe you struggle with being honest, and that's been eroding the strength of the relationships around you. Maybe the idea of being a peacemaker is is not probably who you are right now. If people had to define you, peacemaker probably wouldn't be a part of the definition. You've been stirring up trouble all over the place. Maybe you've been selfish in the way that you've related to the people around you, kind of looking at what you can get from the relationship instead of what you can give. Maybe you've been someone who it's very easy for you to find criticisms. Maybe you sit through a church service and, and, oh, the person putting the words on the screen is messing up, and, oh, the person leading the song messed up these words, and, oh, I heard that person play a bad note, and it's just like criticism is just very, very easy for you, and you've got to get out of that place of looking to criticize and tear down the people around you and begin to encourage them. Or maybe you know you've been holding unforgiveness in your heart. And the Lord is speaking to us this morning saying, I have a promised land for you. Just like Moses, I have a place I want to take you. I have a promise I've given you in your life. But if you won't let me deal with these things in your life, you're not going to make it to the promised land. I actually felt like the Lord just spoke to me just now clearly that there's a woman here this morning who wants to get married desperately. 
And God's saying, I haven't been able to give you that because if I did, you would destroy it because of the unforgiveness you have in your heart to your father. He's saying, if you would forgive your father, I could give you that promised land. I could give you that thing you've been crying out for. I feel like the Lord also says that there's someone who has been, felt like they've had righteous anger. They got a list of reasons why they could justify their anger. Maybe I could get in this boat. Maybe it's me the Lord's talking about. And the Lord says, I'm making you to be a peacemaker. What you're trying to do through anger is not going to accomplish what you would have hoped it would have done. What is the Lord putting his finger on in your heart this morning? Of these five things, what's the place where you're, you're weakest? And you'd say, you know, I've got to grow in that. I've got to quit skirting around the truth. I've got to quit justifying my anger. I've got to quit being so self-serving and only caring about what I care about and what I want and need. I've got to move out of that place of being a criticizer and become an encourager. Or I've got to let go of that unforgiveness and trust God to deal with that person. Lord, we just present ourselves to you here this morning. We just offer ourselves to you. God, we don't want to be like Moses and be in your presence, be in a worship service, and then walk away and move right back into the anger like, like Moses did. We don't want to make those mistakes and go be in a wilderness for 40 years and not learn the lesson that you're trying to teach us. Lord, I ask you to work in our hearts. Lord, we want to have healthy relationships. We don't want to just have surface relationships. We want to have deep relationships. And Lord, we know that in order to do that, in order to be the body of Christ that you've made us to be here in Warsaw, we've got to deal with these things. So we just invite you to come and to work on us, God. Lord, I thank you for each person who's here this morning. And I ask that as they go from this place, they would be willing to allow you to do the work in their hearts that you want to do so we could have the kind of relationships that Paul had with all of these different churches that he went and ministered to, with all these people. He, he had a, a group of people that were encouraging one another and building each other up. Let that be true of us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.